Good morning. morning. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to come here today knowing that you have redeemed us and assembled us as your church to come together and to hear your word and to give you praise. We ask that you help us by changing our hearts and applying your word in such a way that we respond with worship. Help us to do that today and help us to do that forevermore. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We just finished a sermon series on the book of Zephaniah. And week after week, Pastor Phil, especially in this last message, has urged us from Scripture to worship God with heartfelt worship. So let me ask you all something. How are you doing with that? Do you ever find it difficult to praise God? Do you ever wake up on a Sunday morning and think, do I really need to go to church? Have you ever experienced something that is so painful that it left you so broken that while you wanted to praise God, you couldn't? Have you ever found your prayers full of petty requests and empty of praise? If so, you are not alone. All of us have a difficult time praising God at times, especially during tumultuous times. And we need God to reveal himself through his word and cause us to respond to him with praise and adoration. And so my prayer here today is that every single one of your hearts are so touched by God's word that you leave here giving him the glory that only he deserves. Today we're going to be back in the book of Ephesians. And the last time we considered how the letter to the Ephesians comes to a culminating climax, urging us to put on our union with Christ, which is the armor of God, in order to stand firm in our faith and pray. Today, we're going to go back to the beginning of the letter. And as we do, let us stop for a moment and consider the fact that in the first three chapters, which is the first half of the book, Paul begins by laying a theological foundation for us, and for all true Christians who believe in Christ. And he does so in order to apply this theology in the second half of the letter throughout the next three chapters. In other words, it is your theological foundation which enables you to live a Christian life. It is your theological foundation which enables you to live a life that is worthy of the calling that you have been given, one that is pleasing to God, beneficial to us, one that incorporates praise and worship. And this theological foundation begins with an understanding of your salvation. 
And so that's what we're going to get from our text today. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 14. Please join me as we read. The Word of God says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Today's message is titled, Praising the Trinity for Salvation. And in our passage, we are going to be provided with four causes to praise God. And before we jump into the first one, take a look at the introduction in verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. We know that this is written by Paul. And the authority with which he's doing so is the will of God. It is not that Paul wanted to be somebody in the church. It is not that Paul had a desire to be a teacher or a preacher in the church. Rather, by the will of God, God himself in Christ came to him on the road to Damascus, redeeming him and commissioning him as an apostle and sending him to the Gentiles. And now, by the will of God, he is writing this letter to the Gentile church. And he is writing it to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. The prepositional phrase in Ephesus is not in all of the manuscripts, and so there's a difference of opinion on whether or not this letter was actually sent to the church in Ephesus, or if it was a common letter sent to multiple churches in the region. But either way, it does not change the meaning of the text. 
It says that he is writing it to the saints, the Greek word hagios, meaning holy ones, who are faithful, which is the Greek word pistois, or believing in Christ Jesus. It is those who believe in Christ, those who have faith in Christ, that are united to him. And in our union with him, we are declared holy before God because he is the holy one. But even beyond that, in our union with Christ, we are not just declared to be holy, but we actually are transformed in our union with Christ in such a way that we begin to live lives that are holy and blameless before God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it goes on to say, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Both grace and peace are of God. Grace is God giving of himself to his enemies while we deserve his wrath and punishment. And peace is what we who were his enemies get to have with him through redemption in Christ and with each other as we are corporately united as the church. And this grace and peace comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go into the beginning of John's gospel, you'll see in verse 17 where it says that while the law came through Moses, truth and grace comes through Jesus Christ. Truth and grace bring about peace as we are reconciled to God in Christ and brought into community with each other in peace as well in this is cause to praise God. In fact, that brings us into the first cause that's being highlighted here in this passage, which is the Father's election. Praise God for the Father's election. Look at verses 3 through 6. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The word being translated as blessed there is the Greek term where we get our word eulogy. And so when one of your loved ones pass away, you're often asked to produce two documents. First, you're asked to write an obituary, which informs the public of your loved one's passing. But then you're asked to write a eulogy which is designed to share the blessing of your loved one with others. And that is what we are seeing here. It is a benediction. It is praise. It is worship, response to revelation, a doxology, if you will. And it is, he is blessing God in telling you to bless God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a careful reader of the Bible, you've probably already noticed how in verse 2, it says God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 3, it says God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this may cause you to wonder if there's some type of gradational authority within the Godhead, wherein maybe the Son is subordinate to the Father, and that is not so. Rather, what we are seeing here is that while Jesus is fully God, he's also fully man. 
And in verse 2, we see that Jesus in his divinity is on par with the Father. Both truth and grace, well, and peace and grace come from both. But in verse 3 here, we're seeing him in his humanity. And we need to understand that Jesus being fully human was necessary for him to accomplish our salvation. And in his humanity, he had to bring his human will into submission to the Father just like you and me. He also was dependent, he is dependent in his humanity, in his, of his divinity, for his being, for his existence, for his sustenance, and everything else. Just like you and me, because he's fully God, and he's fully man. And it says, God the Father, who's the proper noun of this passage, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There are no blessings outside of Christ. All of God's blessings are found in Christ. And a better way to understand this is the Spirit's blessings. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are united in the Holy Spirit with him. And in that union, we are actually united to Christ in his perfect life under the law, being obedient to it. We are actually united to Christ in his substitutionary death on the cross. We are actually united to Christ in his resurrection to glory. And we are actually united to Christ in his ascension into the heavenly places where he's now seated on the throne at the right hand of God, ruling over all of creation. And while we have already been given his blessing, we are still waiting for the consummation of the covenant to see it in full. Nonetheless, the blessings are in Christ. And it says, even as he chose us, he, meaning the Father, chose us in him, meaning Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The word chose there is where we get our doctrine of election from. It literally means that God chose us for salvation. And here we can see how he chose us before he created anything, and that choosing came about in Christ. Now today there are some people who want to argue that God did not choose individuals before he created things. They want to believe that he chose the church, and when you come to faith, you thereby enter the church and are then considered to be among the elect. However, there are two big problems with this view. The first one is that it makes God dependent upon you, which is blasphemy. Second, it also means that election and our God are very cold and impersonal. But we do not have a cold and impersonal God. We have a warm and loving and very personal God. And it goes on to say here, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And that word purpose means good pleasure. Here we are seeing the doctrine of predestination. And we are also seeing the connection between love and predestination. We see this in Romans chapter 9 where it says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We need to understand that while we're made in God's image and therefore we are analogous to God, God so transcends us that the way we love or the way we hate is not like God. The Bible tells us that his ways are higher than ours. His ways are not like our ways. And so when you hate somebody, it is because you have been deprived of something from someone. And that has caused you to hate them. Yet God is absolute and uncaused. And he cannot be deprived of anything. Rather, his hatred is tied to his reprobation, just as his love is tied to election. Here we are seeing how God's love is a part of his predestination. And predestination is being so highlighted in this passage that we should not miss it. Concerning predestination, what we're seeing here, first and foremost, is the motive, which is God's love. It is not because of who you are. It is not because of what you do. It is not because of what you have done or will do or could be or anything else. It is because of God's love, because God loves you. We are seeing the goal, which is adoption. It says in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Yet we need to understand that when we read about adoption here, we can't think of it through the lens that we are used to thinking about adoption. Because here in our current cultural context, adoption is all about the needs of the would-be parent. right? When you want to be a parent, so you go out and adopt. Yet in this ancient context, they did not adopt for this reason. Rather, they adopted due to the needs of the one being adopted. And we need to remember that we are needy. We all need God. God is life. God is goodness. God is everything good. And we need him. And if we're going to receive an inheritance from him, we need to be adopted as sons. Just recently, I saw an article about a billionaire over in Europe who is literally in the legal process right now of adopting his middle-aged gardener. And he's doing this in order to be able to give him a portion of his inheritance. And that is what we are seeing here. God adopts us in order to give us himself as an inheritance. And we're also seeing the relation. It is to himself. God is not predestining us to go to paradise or something. God is bringing us into himself as family. He's making us his sons and his daughters, and he's adopting us to give us himself forever. We see here also that the mediation is Jesus Christ. It is only through Jesus Christ that anything of salvation takes place. And the standard is his own good pleasure. The word translated here as purpose actually means good pleasure. God takes pleasure in adopting us as his children so that he can love us and be with us forever. And the result 
is the praise of his glorious grace. Look at verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It is Christ who is the true elect one. It is Christ who is the true loved one. It is Christ the one who is truly chosen, and it's in him that we find all of these benefits. It's only in Christ, and this is cause for praise. In fact, in Isaiah 42, 8 and 12, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. This should bring us to a place of praising God. And not just praising God individually. And not just praising God here in the corporate assembly. But also praising God among the inhabitants of the world. Among the nations. Among all the peoples. We should be praising God for the Father's election. And the next thing we see here, the next cause for our praise is the Son's redemption. Take a look at verses 7 through 12. It says, In him, meaning Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In him. Redemption is only in Christ. And redemption always carries with it a connotation of deliverance from the bondage of slavery. We see this in places such as Exodus 6, 6 and 7, where it says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. The slavery with which God is freeing us from in redemption in Christ is slavery to sin. All of us in here are of a sinful nature. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them in such a way that they had the ability not to sin, and they had the ability to sin. But once they sinned, that brought a curse upon them and all of their progeny, wherein we no longer have the ability not to sin. In fact, in the next chapter of Ephesians, it says that we are born dead in our sins and our trespasses. We have no might. We have no power. We have no moral ability whatsoever not to sin unless we have redemption in Christ. But in Christ, we have the ability not to sin. In Christ, we have the ability to live a repentant life. In Christ, we have the ability to praise God and to follow Christ by reading his word and doing what it says. And this redemption is only possible through his blood. It says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It is through the forgiveness that we have through the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus, the fact that he died in our place and shed his blood, that forgiveness 
is what frees us from the bondage of our sins and our trespasses. That's what enables us to live differently. And we see that all of that is in Christ according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon you. Excuse me. God did not just give you a little bit of grace. God did not just give you a little bit of mercy. It's not like he said, well, here, let me just help you out a bit. No. God poured himself out for you. He has given himself wholly to you. He has united with humanity and suffered and died for the sake of our sins to give himself to us in his grace. He has lavished it upon you. And we see here that it also says, making known to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose, once again, good pleasure, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Some of you might recognize the phrase here, fullness of time, from another one of Paul's letters in the letter to the Galatians. And there, if I'm not mistaken, it says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to be born of the woman under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law. The difference between that passage in Galatians and this passage is the word being used for time. In that passage in Galatians, the word is chronos, which means a point in time. So we're talking about at the perfect, predestined, predetermined point in time, God sent forth his son to redeem us. But here, the word is kairos which means eras or segments of time. So when all time is finished, all things will be summed up in Christ. And we see this in a bit more detail in Colossians where it says, for by him, all things were created. And this him is Christ. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. It is only through redemption in Christ, it is only through the blood of Christ, that we can have peace with God and peace with each other. And all of this is coming about by God's own will, by the counsel of his will. And we see here that the next cause for praise is our inheritance. But before we start thinking about ourselves, let us just rewind for a moment. Let us just stop and remember that it's all because of the Father's election. It's in love that the Father chose us in Christ. 
It's for his own good pleasure that he's doing this, as God himself is goodness. And it's only in Christ that we get to realize this, and this should cause us to praise God. So praise God for the Son's redemption. The next cause, as I just said, is our inheritance. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, In him, meaning Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. First thing we need to see is that this once again is in Christ. Our inheritance is only in Christ. Second, we look at the phrase obtained an inheritance and we should understand that this phrase is actually one that also means appointed by lot. And we see it not just here in the New Testament, but we also see it in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. One of the places, for example, that we see it is in Deuteronomy uh, 4.20, where it says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. So we see here that the term is being used to describe God's redeemed people having been allotted as an inheritance to God himself. But then we also see it in places such as Joshua 19.10, where it says, the third lot, that's the term, came up for the people of Zebulun according to their clans, and the territory of their inheritance, that's the term, reached as far as Sarid. So we see here that even the promise of land can only be realized in Christ. It's only in Christ that we can receive an inheritance because God is our inheritance just as we are his. And all of this is coming about through the might and power of his own will, the counsel of his own will. And this is a glorious thing that should cause us to praise we see this in Daniel 4 where it says at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of the heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done God is sovereign he does what he wills and as a part of his will he has determined to redeem you in Christ he has chosen you in love to be adopted as sons to him. And all of this is to, according to his own will. And this is cause to praise him. The last cause mentioned here is the Spirit's sealing. Praise God for the Spirit's sealing. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, in him, meaning in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Once again, in Christ, in Christ, 11 times in the Greek, 10 times in the English here, we actually see in him, in Christ, in the beloved, in whom? It's only in Christ that we have redemption, and this is cause for praise, and it's realized through the Spirit's sealing. Yet let us remember that it's not the Spirit who seals you. Here the proper noun of this passage is God the Father. God the Father seals you with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit himself is the seal. Yet the word seal actually means down payment. We have received the down payment of the new creation. And we know that we have received that down payment of the new creation as we are born again. When we have a newness of life in Christ and all of our desires are transformed and we are, are oriented towards God and we begin to live for him in Christ. In Romans chapter 8 it says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not of the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In the Holy Spirit, we are united to Christ and each other in a corporate union. And we have all the blessings that we will have just in germinate form. It is not here yet. We are waiting for him to return. But because we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, we know that we too will be raised in glory with Christ. And this will be a glorious time, one that will be a never-ending time of praise because all sin will pass away and we will be in the presence of God forever. But for now, we are in an interim period of already but not yet. And you can be assured that you have received the Spirit and been adopted as sons if you are willing to suffer with Christ. If you are willing to suffer with Christ, knowing that you will be raised in glory with him, then this acts as assurance as the Spirit testifies with your spirit that you are with Christ and with God forever. And this is praise for glory, but it's not just praise for some people. It's praise for so many people around the entire world. In fact, when we get to Ephesians chapter 3, we see where it says the mystery of his will back up in verse 9 of our passage here is fully explained. It goes on to say that this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the gospel. 
the good news that you are a wretched sinner deserving of God's wrath and punishment in hell. Yet God loves you and he has chosen you and he has predestined you to be adopted as sons to receive himself as an inheritance. And he has brought it about in Christ. And all of this is to the praise of his glory. Look at verse 6. It says that the father's election is to the praise of his glorious grace. Look at verse 12. It says that our inheritance is to the praise of his glory. Look at verse 14. It says that the Spirit's sealing is to the praise of his glory. But then go back up to 7 and look. The Son's redemption is the riches of God's grace. It is the cross of Christ that is the centerpiece of God's salvation. It is the cross of Christ that is the centerpiece of redemptive history. It is the cross of Christ that we can all point to and know that we will be with God forever because of what Jesus did for us. So praise God. Praise God for the Father's election. Praise God for the Son's redemption. Praise God for our inheritance. Praise God. Praise Him for the Spirit's sealing. Listen. The next time that you have a difficult time praising God, stop and reflect upon the fact that you have been chosen. You haven't just been chosen, but you are loved by the God of the universe as sons and daughters. And that you have been redeemed in Christ. And that redemption can't be taken away. Because you have been sealed for the day of salvation. You are guaranteed to be with him if you are with him now. Praise God. That means we can fall on our face at times. And we can have difficult times. But you don't have to get down on yourself. You don't have to get down on yourself because we know that we have a God who is a God of grace. And it is a marvelous grace. And he has redeemed us. I urge you guys, when you leave here today, with all of this in your mind, to go home and finish reading Ephesians 1 and 2. Read Ephesians 1 and 2 and then read Romans 8. Ephesians 1 and 2, then Romans 8. If you're not praising God at that point, then you need to question your salvation. So let us praise God forever and let us praise the Trinity for salvation. Let's pray. What can we say, God? We belong to you. Oh, your grace is amazing. Help us to recognize that at all times. Remind us over and over and over again that you have loved us in your predestination, that you have chosen us to be adopted into your family, to receive you as an inheritance, that you have accomplished our salvation in Christ, and that you have sealed us for the day of salvation in you, O Holy Spirit. Help us to live lives that are holy and blameless before you, Help us to live lives of praise and adoration. Help us to live lives that are so radically transformed in you 
that everybody around us wants to know who you are. And we ask this 